Well, good morning, church, and happy new year to you on this first Sunday in 2024. We are so grateful to have the opportunity to gather together. And I do want to encourage you to go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in the book of John. John's Gospel in the New Testament, chapter 17, is where we are going to be spending a little bit of time. And as uh, Pastor Jeremy said a few moments ago, if you need a Bible today, they are all around the room. And we would encourage you to grab one of those so you can follow along with us as we walk through this time together. As you find your place in John 17, though, I also want to let you know of something that we're doing to kick off this new year, something that we've done for the last couple of years. We, we are stepping into a 21-day prayer focus. So somewhere in your pew, you should be able to, to see one of these prayer guides. And if, if you're sitting at the end of the row where the prayer guides are, would you go ahead and grab those and just pass them down the row? So hopefully everybody on your row is able to have one of these prayer guides. We, we've got them all over the room. Go ahead and grab one. I want to ask you to just hold it in your hand for, for just a moment because I want to I tell you about what we're doing and then I want to ask you to pray a, a very specific prayer as we enter in to this 21 days. I also want you to know that in our kids ministry, our family ministry has put together a 21 day prayer guide for all of our kids. They'll be getting one of these today as well. So you'll have these to go through as a family. But, but here's what I want you to know about 21 days of prayer. We, we have done this several times before as a church. I so look forward to this opportunity opportunity. It gives us a chance to lean in together, to pray intentionally together. And in this prayer guide, not only are you going to see 21 days of, of a prayer journal and some pr prayer prompts that you can walk through either at home or in our prayer time together, but you'll also see, we, we've added a little, little element of this uh, for this year, uh, of a Bible reading plan in John's gospel. There are 21 chapters in John's gospel, 21 days of prayer. And so we're asking you to read a chapter of John every day starting tomorrow. And the reason we're doing this is we want to we kick off this year together just immersing ourselves in the life and the ministry and the gift of Jesus. John's gospel is the story of Jesus in 21 chapters. And so for these next 21 days, we just want to walk through the word of God as we are praying together for God to show us what he wants us to see. I do want you to know that beginning tomorrow morning, Monday through Friday for the next three weeks, we will have a prayer time in this room, in the worship center at 6.30 in the morning for all who want to join us. We would love for you to be a part of that. And we've added an extra element this year. There will be coffee. How about that? Coffee will be served at a 6.30 prayer time. So our hospitality team has done a great job putting that together. But whether you join us or whether you go through this on your own, we're asking everybody to, to, to walk through this time together seeking the Lord. And here, as you hold your prayer guide, two prayers that I want to ask you to begin praying even today and to pray tomorrow morning as we step into this time together. That, and you may want to write these down. The first uh, prayer is simply this, Lord, what do you want me to see over these next 21 days? Knowing all that you know of every detail of my life and everything I'm walking through and all the circumstances in front of me, Lord, what do you want me to see? Would you pray that prayer? But secondly, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you show me? 
on these next 21 days, what, what do you want me to do? I believe that prayer propels the people of God into action, into faith, through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit. So I believe that at the end of these 21 days, there should be something in all of us if we're seeking the Lord, that, that we feel led to, to do in faith, to follow in faith, to, to change in faith, to lay down in faith. I don't know what it will be for you. But would you begin to pray that prayer? What do you want me to see? And what do you want me to do with what you show me? Let's see what the Lord has for us as we seek him together as a church over these next 21 days. I am expectant. I am looking forward to seeing what the Lord reveals. Now, John 17 is going to be our guide throughout this time. We're going to walk through this chapter of Scripture over the next several weeks. And what we see in John 17 is a prayer, a very specific prayer, a very important prayer. This is often called the prayer of Jesus. It is Jesus praying for his followers, praying for his disciples, praying for his church that will be established. And he's praying in a very passionate, heartfelt way, knowing that the cross is right before him. In fact, you'll see if you read to John 18, at the end of this prayer, the next thing that we see in John's gospel is Jesus is betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas, and he is arrested and taken away to be crucified. Jesus has a heavy heart for his followers as he prays this prayer in John 17. Not only does he know what's coming for him, but he knows what's coming for them. He knows they will face tremendous challenges and hardships and persecutions simply because they are following him. And so he pours out his heart. This prayer is such a gift to the church because it gives us a, a little bit of an inside look at the heart of Jesus as he prays for his followers. So John 17, we're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to walk through the first five verses of this prayer today. And I want to invite you to stand with me as I read from God's Word. John 17, verses 1 through 5. We stand here at Shades for the reading of God's Word because the Word of God is our foundation. This is where we stand. And we see what God reveals is right and good and true every time we turn to the Holy Scripture. John 17 says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus prays, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The beginning of the prayer of Jesus. Let me pray over us right now that the Lord would use his word in our life to lay before us what he knows we need to see and then we'll be seated. Heavenly Father, this is your time. Sacred space where we have gathered together to hear from you. I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would show us what you know we need to see. That you would begin to prompt in us, Lord, 
what you desire for us to, to, to do in this, this new year that is a gift of grace. What do you have for us? What do you want? What do you desire for us to see and do? Lord, show us your way. Thank you for this prayer of Jesus. May it be our guide into your heart and into your joy. Father, may you be glorified through all that is said and done here today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing with me. You may have heard a statement similar to this one, that last words are to be lasting words. Last words are lasting words. If, if you've ever had a loved one who was facing the, the end of their life and, and had the opportunity to converse with you, you know those words that are being shared are incredibly important, incredibly significant, as if that loved one is saying, don't forget these words. The last thing I would say to you is going to be so important. The last prayer I'm going to pray for you is going to be so important. Do not miss this. John 17, in many ways, are last words from Jesus. Yes, he is going to, to, to pray more. He's going he's gonna to pray uh, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray as he's being taken away to be crucified. He's going to pray as he's on the cross. He, he's he's going to interact with his disciples after the resurrection. He's going to challenge them with the Great Commission and the Acts 1-8 call to go into the world on mission. But this prayer, this prayer serves as really... Some of the last words before Jesus will be killed, crucified on the cross. And so his, his heart is heavy. His heart is heavy for his followers. He, he knows they are about to step into a whirlwind. It's about to be chaotic. It's about to feel overwhelming. It's, it's, about, to, it's about to be scary for them in many ways. And so he's praying Pouring out his heart to the Father on behalf of his followers, knowing what they will face. Knowing that, that, that John will hear his prayer and ultimately record this prayer in the inerrant word of God, the Holy Scripture, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Knowing that, that his church will read this prayer generation after generation after generation. Jesus wants us to hear these words. And they are to be foundational. They, this prayer is to serve as a pillar for the people of God. You want to know the heart of Jesus? You read the prayer of Jesus before he goes to the cross. This is the heart of Jesus on display. And this prayer comes on the heels of a very 
sacred moment that Jesus has shared with his disciples. If you, if you begin reading in, in John 13 up until the end of John 17, you're going to see that the disciples have gathered together with Jesus in a very special, sacred way. It's, it's in these chapters of John that we see Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper for his disciples. It's where he washes their feet. It's where he tells them of what's about to take place at the cross. And he tells them that he's going to rise again in three days. It's, it's a very sacred moment. But at the same time, it's a moment for these disciples that still brings a lot of question and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknown. And so at the end of, of this whole time that they've had together, right before Jesus prays this prayer, he, he says one of the, the great promises that he makes to his followers, one of the great promises of Jesus for his church. It's in John 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Some of you need to hear this today. You, you have been walking through a difficult, difficult season. I say these things, that in me you may have peace. Don't miss this. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's, it's a guarantee. It is going to happen. Sometimes you will have tribulation simply because you are following Jesus. And then Jesus, here's the promise. Jesus says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so then at the beginning of John 17, as Jesus starts to pray, John records for us when Jesus spoke these words. As he lays out this promise, I have overcome the world. He knows that for that promise to be fulfilled, he must go and do what the Father has called him to go and do, which is to make his way to the cross. For the promise to be fulfilled, the cross is necessary. And so Jesus speaks these words, I have overcome the world, I, I am overcoming the world. The, take heart, you can trust in me, you can have peace in the midst of tribulation. And, and then he says, Father, the hour has come, it is time. It is time for me to do the very thing that you have called me to do. John 17, 1, it says, He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The culmination of what Jesus came to the earth to do when he took on flesh, when he was born of the Virgin Mary and, and laid in a manger in that little town of Bethlehem and grew in wisdom and stature and then, and then became a, a minister, a rabbi, if you will, leading his followers in, in the things of God. Three years of public ministry and miracles and teaching and, and laying out the gospel and the message of salvation. It all has led to this moment. The hour has come for me to do what you called me to do. And Jesus, in this beautiful picture of both his humanity and his divinity says father would you glorify me now with the strength of heaven because I know what is before me 
I know what I'm about to step onto. I know how horrific it's going to be. Father, would you glorify the Son in this moment as I do the thing that you have called me to do and glorify you through offering my life at the cross. This, this, is, this is personal. This is passionate. This is heartfelt what Jesus is praying, knowing the cross is before him. And then over these next couple of verses, verse 2 through 4 of John 17, again, Jesus knows that his disciples are listening as he prays. He knows that John will one day record this prayer in his gospel account. And so as he's praying, he's also teaching. You'll be able to see this. He's, he's proclaiming the gospel as he prays. John 17, verse 2, we begin to see this. It says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now this is, this is the beginning, please hear this, of an audacious claim that Jesus makes about himself. He says, I have authority over all flesh. I am the ruler over all people. And as the one who has authority over all flesh, I have the authority to give eternal life. This, this is the absolute foundation of the message of Jesus, the Christian faith, the good news of the gospel. I, I want to make sure it is explicitly clear here as we begin a new year together. Please do not miss this. Eternal life, according to Jesus, not according to some preacher ranting and raving on, on a stage, according to Jesus, eternal life, is found in Christ alone. If you don't agree with that, you need to understand you are not agreeing with Jesus. This is not just some religious idea that, that some churches came up with. No, this is from Jesus. He has the authority over all flesh and as the one who has authority over all flesh, he has the authority to grant eternal life. Eternal life is found in Christ alone. Now, th this is an audacious claim. It is a bold claim. It, it is a controversial claim to many people. Many people in our, in our culture would say, now hold on, you, you can't tell me that, that Jesus is the only one who, who, can, who can grant eternal life. I mean, come on, there's a lot of different paths. Just find your path. Just be true to yourself. As long as you believe in faith in something, you're going to be good to go. That is a very common message in our culture today. But Jesus is saying, actually, I, I have come for this purpose. I want you to hear me say it and hear me say it clearly. Eternal life is found in Christ alone. And, and, and here's what Jesus wants us to feel the weight of. The cross is right before him. Think about this. He knows he is about to go to the cross. And he wants us to understand that if there are multiple ways 
to be right with God, if there are multiple paths to eternal life, if there are multiple ways by which men can be saved, please feel the weight of this. Then the cross of Jesus Christ, if there are multiple ways to eternal life, is the most cosmic, colossal, senseless act of cruelty that the world has ever seen. That God would send his only son to take on flesh and die an excruciating, horrific, torturous death on the cross just to be one of many options? That's insane. That is absolutely barbaric and cruel. And we need to understand this. Because if we, if we say, oh, oh I, I, I think there's a lot of different ways, there's a lot of different options, we actually are we're mocking the cross. We're mocking what Jesus has done. If we say, hey, I really think I can earn my salvation somehow. I'm trying hard to be a good person. I'm trying hard to be religious. We're actually saying the cross is a waste of time. If we are saying, I, I somehow want to just live a good enough life, just, just be a decent part of humanity and do more good than bad and try to find the right thing that gives me peace. If I, if I could just do this on my own, we're actually saying the cross is a waste of time. Jesus did not come to die on a cross just to give us an option of many ways to eternal life. No, Jesus came and gave his life at the cross because it is the only option by which man could be saved. That he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That he has given his perfect and sinless life at the cross as the only worthy and acceptable atonement or sacrifice for our sin. According to Jesus, there is no other way. And in case it's not clear, look at what he prays in verse 3 of John 17. He says, and this is eternal life. Here it is. And I want you to have a question about this. I want it to be clear. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. According to Jesus, eternal life is found in Christ alone. And I, I know, I know that, that some of you might be wrestling with this right now. This, this is an incredibly offensive statement in our culture. I, I want to acknowledge that. When Jesus says there is only one true God, not a lot of different gods to choose from, not a lot of options, there is only one true God. And the only way to eternal life is through the Son whom he has sent. I know that that makes some people really push back or, or really uncomfortable. And, and some may even say, gosh, that's just not inviting. That's not tolerant. That's not inclusive. All, all these words that are so important in our culture, they, this doesn't seem to fit there. 
It seems even unkind to to say to those who believe there are many ways or a different way. Actually, there's only one way, which is another way of saying you're wrong if you believe in, in many ways. That seems so offensive in the world that we live in today. And I would say it is incredibly offensive unless, unless it is true. And if this is true, if what Jesus says about himself is true, it is the most inviting, grace-filled gift of kindness that the world has ever seen. That Jesus would not only tell us the way to eternal life, but he would personally sacrifice, give his life, and die to provide the way to eternal life. What could be more inviting than that? I don't want you to be confused, Jesus is saying. I don't want you to be misled. I don't want you to misunderstand. There is only one way. And that way is found through the one true God who has sent his son to die on the cross for your sin. This is eternal life, Jesus says. That you would know the one true God and the Son whom he has sent. You know, earlier in, in that conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples before he begins to pray this prayer in John 17, we see one of his disciples, Thomas, come to Jesus with, with some questions. He's confused. He's like, Jesus, I hear you talking about eternal life and talking about giving your life and, and, and talking about the fact that you're going to go away from us, but then we're going to come to you at some point. And he's like, Jesus, I just, I don't understand all this. And so Thomas, one of the disciples, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And I love the gift that Jesus provides, he responds to, Jesus, to Thomas again and just says with great clarity, Thomas, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I, I just want it to be clear that if, if, if you push back on the statement that eternal life is found in Christ alone, you're not pushing back against me. You're not pushing back uh, against some, some churches. You're pushing back against Jesus. Because this is the claim that he has made about himself. And when he makes this claim about himself, that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God the Father, eternal life is found in him alone. That literally just gives us two options. We can believe him at his word. We can trust him at his word. We can believe he is who he says he is and worship him with our lives, surrender to him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Or we can completely dismiss him as a crazy, narcissistic liar that should never be listened to or considered. There's no middle ground there. I love the way Tim Keller put it years ago. He said, Jesus cannot be just liked. His claims make us either kill him or crown him. There's no neutrality if you really unpack what Jesus says. Either he is who he says he is or he should be dismissed, banished, killed, ignored altogether. So the question for all of us 
is what do we believe about what Jesus says? What do you believe about the claims of Jesus? This is one of the most important questions you can ever answer. What do you believe about what Jesus says about himself? Look at what he says next, John 17, verse 4. The gospel continues here, and this, I would say, is the gospel summed up in one statement. Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Again, this is the gospel encapsulated in one statement. Why do I say that? Because Jesus is making it clear. He has come to do for us, for you and for me, what we can never do for ourselves. He came to live a perfect and sinless life. He came to offer that perfect and sinless life as a sacrifice for sin. He came to walk out of the grave after he was crucified to defeat sin and death, to rise again, to empower his people to follow him in faith. He has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. And as he prays to the Father, he is showing us that what he has done, the way he has lived, and the death he would die, and the victory he would have over sin and death, it perfectly fulfills the law of God. Why does that matter? It matters because many of us, many of us again, are trying really hard to fulfill the law of God so that we can be right with God. We're trying really hard to do the right thing and live the right way. And that's a good desire. Please don't miss that. That is a very good desire to do the right thing and to live the right way. That, praise God for that desire if that's the way you feel. Jesus wants it to be clear in our desire to do the right thing and live the right way. We cannot come close to fulfilling the law. That is why he came. He says in his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17, Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. No, no, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill them, to fulfill the law. And so as Jesus is praying to his father, I have done what you called me to do. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He is making the statement that I have fulfilled the law because they could not. And I want them to know the joy of having peace with the Father, of being right with the Father that is only found through the fulfillment of the law. And that is only possible through Jesus Christ. When I, when I think about this statement of Jesus, this is just a simple little illustration. But I think about when our kids were younger. Our oldest daughter, McKenna, sitting down front here. She's in, in college now. When McKenna was a toddler... We had this little table in our kitchen, a small little square table. It had three chairs around it. It was against a wall. I mean, like the chairs were so small, I couldn't sit in them. I would have to kneel like this by the table. But, but our kids would often eat their meals at this little table, learning how to feed themselves and 
you know, eat for themselves. And, and many times they would eat their breakfast at that table, you know, cereal or yogurt or something like that. And, and here's what would happen every time as they were eating at that table, parents and grandparents, and, you know, nieces or they have nieces and nephews. If you're an uncle or an aunt, you've experienced this. When, when a little toddler's feeding themselves, it goes everywhere, right? It's all over them. It's all over the table. It's all over the floor. And so many times we would hand them a, a napkin or a paper towel or something and say, okay, clean up your mess. Clean up your mess. But do you know what happens when a, when a toddler gets a paper towel to try and clean up a pile of yogurt on the table? They just spread the mess around, right? Spread the mess around, spread the mess around. And then they get up and leave, right? And the mess is bigger than it was before. And what happens? Mom and dad have to come in, sanitize, spray, get the wipes, whatever, clean up the mess because they can't do it. They're trying, but they can't do it. And I would just propose to each and every one of us that when it comes to the law of God, we're just sitting at that little table like a toddler and there's a mess. And we're trying, we're trying, we're cleaning, we're trying, but we're just spreading it around. And Jesus is saying to you and to me as he prays to the Father, I want you to see that in accomplishing all that the Father has given me to accomplish in fulfilling the law of God, I have cleaned up the mess. Now, there will still be ramifications for sin. There are still going to be challenges we will face in our sin. But the mess has been cleaned up and paid for by, by the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. Are we trusting Jesus at his word? The one who has perfectly done for us what we could never do for ourselves. You can't clean up the mess. Only Jesus can. And then we'll close here today, verse 5 of John 17. I want to take us from here real quickly to Philippians 2. So just be ready to turn with me. But John 17, 5, Jesus, as he prays, says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, listen to this, before the world existed. Now this is so incredibly important, so, so uh, profound and powerful, what Jesus is praying here in verse 5. He is, he's teaching his followers doctrine and at the same time showing his followers how much he loves them. What do I mean by that? Well, he's teaching them doctrine and saying, look, you need to understand if you are a follower of Jesus that, that Jesus did not begin when, when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary's womb and then born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. That's when he took on flesh, but that's not when he began. He is the eternal God. He has existed before the world began. He, he is the God who was, who is, and who, who will be. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the eternal God, one with the Father, one with the Spirit. And as he shows us this doctrine that he existed before the world began, he is showing us how much he loves us and what he was willing to sacrifice to demonstrate that love. 
what, what do I mean? Well, the Apostle Paul says it far better than I could say it. So that's where I want you to turn to Philippians 2 very quickly as we close this message. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6. The Apostle Paul is pointing us to Jesus, to the sacrifice that he made, to the gift that he provided, to show us the love of God. Philippians 2 verse 6 says this, Though he was in the form of God, existing before the beginning of the world, the eternal God, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. Paul then says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, the scripture states, God has highly exalted him. Do you remember the prayer of Jesus? I pray that you would glorify me, Father with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hear this, to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what Jesus was willing to sacrifice to show you his love. Yes, he sacrificed his life at the cross. An unbelievable, undeniable expression of love. The, the, the great sacrifice of giving his life for your sin and mine to be forgiven so that we could be right with God. But that's not all he sacrificed. He sacrificed all of the glory of heaven that was rightly his. He emptied himself. The eternal God stepped into flesh in this life, in a barn, in a feed trough, in all the sin and dirt and filth of this world. He emptied himself of the glory of heaven and took on flesh. To again live a life that you and I could never live. So that you and I through his sacrifice at the cross could know how great the Father's love is for us. That through what Jesus laid aside and through what Jesus gave up in humility to go to a cross. We might be called sons and daughters of God. Paul tells us because of what Christ has done that a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is an amazing thing to consider, but I don't want you to be confused here. The Apostle Paul is not saying a day is coming when all will be saved. That's not what Paul's saying. Just read all of his letters. You will see 
That's not what he is saying at all. Remember, eternal life is found in Christ alone. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying a day is coming when Christ returns, when every knee, heaven, earth, and under the earth, will bow acknowledging that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. But please don't miss this. For some, for some, that day will be the most unbelievable day of celebration and joy and worship of the one true God as, as we see the fulfillment of all the promises of God laid before us and we are united with Christ forevermore. What a day. But for some, for some that day, will be more terrifying, horrific, sorrow-filled, painful, full of regret than any day we could possibly imagine. Because for some on that day, they will acknowledge Jesus as Lord, recognizing they never trusted in the only one who could provide eternal life. And as a result, they will be separated from the King of kings and Lord of lords forevermore. And so at the beginning of a new year, when we're all evaluating what matters and what we want to do with our life and what goals we might have, I, I just want to ask you what I, I believe is the most important question you could ever answer. On that day when every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What will that day be like for you? A day of worship? A day of unimaginable joy? Or a day of sorrow, terror, regret? It, 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 here's the amazing thing. You can know. Because Jesus makes it clear, eternal life is found in Christ alone. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have trusted your life to Jesus Christ, you can know in confidence what that day will be like. And if you are here today and you are unsure and you say, I, I, I don't know, or gosh, that, that, I'm not in Christ, that, that sounds like a horrible day for me. You can know today, January 8th, you can wake up knowing confidence what that day will be like for you. And this is the gospel, the plan of salvation, that Jesus has offered his life so that you could be forgiven, made right with God, have peace with God, be restored to God, and be with God forevermore. The promise of the one who provides eternal life, will you receive? Let me pray for us as we think about that question and as we close our time here this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and grace over our lives, making it so clear what it means for someone to receive the gift of salvation. 
And Father, as we think about that day that is coming, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, I pray, Lord God, in the prompting of your Holy Spirit that we would be able to be honest. What will that day be like for us? For those who know in confidence that they have trusted in Jesus, the one who provides forgiveness, the one who provides eternal life, Lord, I pray that that this would stir up a fervent worship, a passion for you in this new year to, to live for your glory in all things in gratitude to what you have done for them in providing this gift and this assurance of that day. For those who still have questions and doubts or fears of what that day might be like, it is my prayer and the power of your spirit that they would step out on faith today and say, Jesus, I am ready for the gift of eternal life that you alone can provide. And I am trusting my life to you as my Savior and as my Lord. Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sin. I am trusting the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we praise you for the gift of salvation. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.